Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome to another episode of The Future of Application Security. Today, I have Bradley Petzer, the Senior Director of Product Security from Know Before, as a fantastic guest today. Bradley, welcome to the show. Hi, Harshal. Thank you so much for having me. Bradley, this is going to be an exciting topic. I've known Know Before for several years now. You guys have done really, really well. And I was actually super excited that Know Before has somebody senior like yourself in charge of product security, application security, and things like that. This is great news. I am very interested in the topics today we were just discussing earlier before this podcast, but I would love to dive deeper into some of those things. But before we do that, it would be fantastic if you can just briefly introduce yourself to our audience. What do you do, where you work, and other things like that? Sure. So as Arshal mentioned, I'm Bradley Petzer. I'm the Senior Director of Product Security at Nobefore. Nobefore, if you don't know, is the world's largest provider of security awareness training and simulated phishing. And my role at the company is I'm responsible for both the AppSec and cloud security teams. And just to go over how I got here is been with the company for six years and I started on the InfoSec team early on. I think I was the CISO's second hire, really worked my way up from the bottom of the InfoSec team, uh, helped build the team to where it is today. And now I'm running a team of myself on the InfoSec team, making sure our product that we provide to our customers is secure. That's an amazing journey, Radley. And you said six years at Know Before, right? Uh, yeah, just going on six years, I mean, six years in a couple of months. Fantastic. And were you hired in application security or cloud security or one of those things? No, actually, yeah, this crazy story. I actually was looking at, you know, using No Before at my previous company and I found a position in support and I actually came over here to No Before in support. And I worked in support for a couple of months before, you know, trying to hop onto the InfoSec team based on my previous experience. Um, I was a great fit and um, I was able to work my way up. Oh, that's amazing. Did you? So that's interesting. So you started at No Before in tech support and you went into security. Is that because you were proactively looking to get in there or somebody identified you as a talent? Yeah, no, I was proactively looking. I was always interested in getting into cybersecurity. You know, um, I feel like a lot of people have a passion to get into cybersecurity. So I was proactive. I went to the CISO and I was like, hey, you know, if any positions open up, you know, I don't have direct you know, experience in cybersecurity, but I've done a lot of IT. I have a lot of IT experience. You know, I feel like I would be a good fit. And he actually looked, you know, for someone with more cybersecurity experience initially. And we weren't able to find him. He was like, you know what? I'll, I'll hire you and see how it goes. And it worked out well for him and, and myself. That's such an incredible story. We don't see these things very often, especially because you also rose up the chain fairly quickly. So I'm sure it was the right decision six years ago. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the company No Before has been in hyper growth, growth since um, about six years ago, seven years ago. So, you know, the team, the InfoSec team has had to be in hyper growth too. So 
you how to <laughs> how to grow with it. So tell me about when you originally started in cybersecurity in your first role after tech support. I'm guessing there would be a lot of new things for you to learn in that domain. I mean, security is pretty deep and also wide in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. Where did you start? How did you learn the things that you had to in your first security job? So yeah, I started, I had actually was working on a a cybersecurity certification um, from Cisco initially. I also had uh, security plus. So I started working on getting some certifications in the industry to build my understanding of what's needed in cybersecurity. But a lot of it, you know, is, is researching, finding out, learning by doing. I feel like that's the best way to actually learn cybersecurity is by doing. Fantastic. And it sounds like it was also the right timing in the right place for you to be in. So the company supported you to learn those things on the job, which is also not very frequent. A lot of times people, fortunately, unfortunately, they just end up looking for senior people with experience and they keep looking and looking and looking and it's hard mm-hmm. to find those people, but it's great. So if there was somebody who is now in a position similar to what you were, you know, several years ago, just looking to start in cybersecurity, what suggestion would you give them? Be proactive, go out there and, you know, get the cybersecurity certifications. You want to make sure you stand out, right? You want to Go ahead, participating bug bounties in cybersecurity programs. You know, a lot of people are doing these. So you want to make sure you stand out from the rest. You know, don't be afraid to take a position where you start at the bottom and can work your way up. That's interesting. And, you know, I've always heard, you know, different opinions about certifications itself. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, you know, if you're just entering into the field, then it gives you exposure to some credibility. But, you know, I've also seen many practitioners who also say certifications don't actually matter. I'm not saying either way, but I'm I'm curious to see why you recommend certifications as a way to get started. Yeah, I mean, I believe the certifications, cybersecurity certifications definitely help to a point, right? They help you with the foundational knowledge on the topic that you'll be working with. Um, some certs even have good practical parts to them where you can actually learn. But that helps you get started to a certain point. If you don't actually do and practice and, and start creating your own tools or, you know, for being an AppSec, go ahead and create your own web application. If you, if you know how to do what the engineering team are doing, you'll go way further than just having that knowledge without having that actual experience. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think just showing that you are willing to you know, roll up your sleeves, learn mm-hmm. now, before even actually getting the job. That shows a lot of proactive mindset uh, and initiatives, which are, which are also important skills to have in cyber because we end up having to learn new things all the time anyways, right? So we have to protect mm-hmm. ourselves and the companies against new, new vectors, new attack patterns, new things, new technologies. You have to constantly, you know, be staying current with all the threats landscape out there with uh, applications, security, you know, there's vulnerabilities coming out every day and with cloud security, you know, there's all these new challenges with uh, running services in the cloud and AWS is always coming out with new services. So, you know, staying current with that, it's very important. Love it. Love it. So another thing that piqued my curiosity, and I've had this conversation with a few other guests as well in terms of your team and your title, which is focused on product security. Now, you spent some time as an AppSec engineer, application security engineer as well. 
How do you see those two things as different if you do see them differently? They're very closely related, right? Our product security, we are focused on the security of our products that we provide to our customers, our products our applications. So we need to make sure we have the AppSec side of things covered, but we also have to make sure you know, where those applications are running. They're running in the cloud. We're running those in AWS. So if we're not protecting our cloud, those applications are going to be just as vulnerable. So they tie very closely together. And so that's why I run both the application and cloud security side of the things. Got it. So in your team, do you have engineers who are you know, one group with core AppSec skills and another group with cloud security skills, or is that blending in together? Yeah, we do have uh, separate skill sets. We have, we have an, I have an AppSec engineer. We are focused on, you know, making sure the code, the dependencies, all of those pieces are secure. And then we have someone dedicated who knows AWS really well, who's familiar with cloud security posture management tools, who's familiar with IAC and Terraform. There's two, you know, lot big separate skill sets there that I feel like that would be difficult for a single person to know really well of both. So I expect both sides of the team to know a bit about each other, but um, to specialize in both AppSec and CloudSec, we have uh, separate members allowed. Got it. That makes sense. So now if you think about product security and your mission or your charter being to secure the entire end-to-end product that you're selling to your customers, what are the key challenges that you see that product security teams face today? So one of the big challenges I feel like we're facing today is when it comes to the risk with compliance versus actual security risk, right? Everyone's familiar with the Zen diagrams of like, oh, yes, security and compliance, they just overlap a little bit where we have these audits that are saying that, such as SOC 2, FedRAM, ISO, that are saying, like, hey, if we're doing these, we are secure. It's like, is that really the case? Does that actually make us secure by getting these audits? And I feel like that our mindset's not on track with that. Our focus is on too much of the compliance side. You know, we're taking away from actually doing what matters. You know, compliance tells us to do an annual pain test where, you know, if we're doing only an annual pain test, we're not going to have full coverage of apps. I know at no before we're, you know, deploying code changes every week, multiple code changes every week. If we're doing an annual pen test, we're never going to get full coverage of that. So, you know, trusting that compliance and audits are going to go ahead and actually say that an organization secure is this fallacy. Right. And it's interesting that there's a lot of different compliance frameworks that are putting more and more focus on the application security or the product security realms, right? So earlier, it was very superficial in a way, but now I think there's more and more scrutiny, starting with the government regulations, right? So we've seen FedRAMP do a lot more in application security or even infrastructure security. We've seen some of the recent White House administration guidance around SBOMs and, you know, building more supply chain security. We've seen NIST build out SSDF and putting a little bit more focus on how software and applications are being built and deployed. So I think that over the next few years, in my opinion, at least, there will be more and more compliance inroads into the domains of AppSec and ProdSec, which wasn't the case up until a few years ago. 
So you're right. I think <laughs> as practitioners, we'll have to figure out how do we maintain that balance, right? Yeah, for sure. We want to make sure we prioritizing you know, what we're doing in the AppSec realm. If we're focusing on outdated audit requirements, then we're not putting our focus where it needs to be. So I'm hoping you know that mentality shifts. Um, it seems like we are trying to get on the right pathway with those com- those standards coming from from the government, but we'll just have to see how where that takes us. Right, right. And I've seen several cases where it just goes to the level of craziness that's unmanageable. So, for example. I remember talking to someone and they were really struggling with this FedRAMP requirement that said, you have to scan your code using a static analysis tool and you have to respect the severity that the tool gives you. You cannot change it. Well, if you follow that to the definition and you use pretty much any commercial static analysis tool, you're going to get stuck with hundreds of thousands of findings that you'll have to dedicate so many resources just to triage and prioritize, if you can't even change the severity of the findings, that's a nightmare situation for a lot of, not just security teams, but also for the engineering teams who has to deal with all that data. And there's got to be a reasonable position somewhere in the middle. Now, I don't know if that's a real requirement. It was just, you know, as a part of Mm -hmm. conversation with somebody, but I'm kind of curious to see what you think is happening in the worlds of, you know, FedRAMP requirements and intersection of AppSec, ProcSec. Yeah, I mean, there are these requirements, right? And we all know how reliable SaaS tools are. There's a lot of false positives that come in from those. So if we're not able to, like, you know, prioritize those results correctly, we're going to give our, our engineering teams hundreds and hundreds of security fixes to do. And if we keep doing that, you know, they're not going to trust us with security, they're going to be like, oh, you know, these aren't actually important. Like everything's a high priority because of compliance, because compliance told us it is, you know, and also the same with CVEs, you know, with all of the dependencies out there, there's all of these that are coming in high critical. It's last year, I think there were 25,000 plus CVEs published, you know, and we're probably using thousands. If you're a large organization, you're probably using thousands of dependencies in your applications. So if everything comes in high and critical from these, our developers aren't going to be able to trust that security knows what they're talking about if everything's a high priority. So, you know, to go ahead and actually prioritize those, make sure we're providing meaningful security risks to our engineering teams. That's pretty important so that we can form good, you know, relationships with your engineering teams. I'm actually kind of curious, how have you structured your team to be able to do this type of work. And the reason I say that is most AppSec or cloud security engineers that I know, nobody gets excited about working on FedRAMP compliance or any other compliance requirements, right? But Mm -hmm. the people who are experts in compliance, they're also usually not very, very technical. Like they don't understand. I mean, they're not running these security tools. They're not doing architecture reviews or code reviews or threat modeling. And the engineers definitely don't want to deal with all of that stuff, right? So how do you make your company successful when there's an intersection of engineering skills and technical security skills and compliance skills needed? Yeah, I think it's all about the relationships, right? So we have a a pretty good um, compliance team that we work closely with that we try and, you know, make sure that what we're doing is reasonable. You know, sometimes we just have to bite the bullet when it comes to compliance, but we try and work with them to help 
make sure we meet in the middle, make sure we're doing what's required of us, but also doing what's reasonable when it comes to security. I think what's fairly important um, for myself is make sure we prioritize you know, security risk. We take a look at not only what the impact of that risk is, we take a look at what the likelihood is is in the context of you know our applications, of our organization. And we go ahead and you know, submit those to dev based on that to get the true risk. And luckily, our uh, company is very, finds tech debt very important, right? So we're not shy of handling our tech debt, even if that comes to security tech debt. So we're pretty good at handling those dependencies and container vulnerabilities, all those vulnerabilities that make their way up. But we set the expectations correctly. And when we do get a high priority, say from our bug bounty program, it's like, hey, guys, this is actually the highest priorities finding. Our engineering team knows when I put that in that you know they don't question it. They drop what they're doing and they get those. Even though we have a two-week SLA for a critical vulnerability, they'll get it done that day. So you know it's very good to form those relationships so that you know expectations are set across the board. Right, right. So giving high fidelity signals to your engineering team builds that trust. It's, it's one of the components that builds that trust, right? Uh, and what I hear you say is that your team is the one that does that upfront work to make sure that you're giving good, you know, quote unquote, customer experience to your engineering teams. Now, in terms of compliance specifically, have you dedicated people in your team who take most of the compliance related things? I'm talking about specifically like FedRAMP or SOC2 or ISO or things like that, or it's distributed across every individual in your team? Uh, it's distributed across, right? So we have there are multiple scanning sources. You have you know, your container scans, you have cloud scans, you have you know, open source scans, fast scans, all of that. So there's a, quite a bit of a workload. But what I've done, and I think it's very important to do for an AppSec team, is generally I feel like AppSec teams are pretty small and they have a lot of responsibility in an organization. Is you know You need to automate these processes. If you're not able to automate these processes, you are just going to find your team just busy, 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 constantly having to deal with, you know, findings all the time. So what we do at Novi4, you know, the SEC team is we have an automation team who are responsible for automating processes for us. So even though my team can, you know, write Python scripts and do that themselves, it's we go, hey, you know, we have this challenge, we have this process that needs to be automated. And we get our automations team and they automate that for us. And that helps us tremendously, saves our AppSec engineers time, saves our engineering team's time, saves our compliance team time. That's amazing. Now, you talked about automation that saves time across multiple different teams. If you can share a few examples of automations that have been most effective for your team. Yeah, sure. So we use Sneak for our open source container scanning, et cetera. And what we do with that is we have an automation that goes ahead and ties into Sneak, pulls the findings every month, and goes ahead and creates the Jira tickets for the dev teams, creates them in Epic for each project. And that notifies the dev team like, hey, we've got these current list of monthly scan findings. Let's go ahead and automate those. We're also working on automation now with uh, Sneak has these priority findings. So you know sometimes a CVE has a higher priority, even though the criticality is uh, lower. So we really have these automation now that, you know, higher priority findings 
go ahead and notify us straight away so that we can work on those quicker than just relying on a monthly scan to be like, hey, we need to go ahead and patch these bindings. That's awesome. Yeah, I think one of the key things is Sneak will tell you the high priority things, but then when you create a ticket, how do you automate the rest of the part, which is who owns this issue? How do you assign it to the right individual, the right team, and then track it to closure? I'm kind of curious if you've built any automation around that piece as well. So that is all handled by our engineering team on the most part. It's We've got a, each project in Sneak, it's mapped out to a project in Jira. So you know when it's created on that side, our product management team know to go ahead and assign it to our sustaining. We have a sustaining team that goes ahead and handles the majority of those security findings. And then we use Jira for tracking our progress. You know, So we have fields that we've actually, custom fields that we built out in Jira for severity, for what the weakness is, where the source is. And what we're working on is getting this to go ahead and map out to the same fields that are required in a FedRAM POEM report. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but every month you have to build out a POEM report, it's an Excel spreadsheet, and present that to the, the federal agencies. So we have this whole automation in process so that we can provide these reports on a, cost, on a constant basis. And it also helps us provide these findings to our customers. Our customers want to know, you know, what is our current status, what findings we have, you know, we have this all built out in Jira automations to go ahead and export these reports. Right. That's awesome. So I think the sort of related topic that we were talking about earlier is how do you actually deal with this massive volume of open source vulnerabilities, right? You mentioned Sneak. Mm-hmm. Sneak is phenomenal. But at the same time, if you look at the entirety of all of the things that even Sneak might be giving you, I don't know about you guys, but in most of people I talk to, it's a lot. Do you have uh, any opinions or thoughts on how you guys want to or are doing prioritization of that? Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. I think that all organizations have to deal with it. Um, And I don't think it's a problem that's been completely solved anywhere currently. We rely on devs to go ahead, our engineering team to go ahead and actually be self-proactive. When they find something, we, we want them to go ahead and update those dependencies we need to go ahead and provide them the resources. We need to go ahead and you know, help them self-serve security. I know that's a big thing these days with uh, you know the whole Netflix paved road approach. So providing resources like that, you know, not just relying on the AppSec team to present issues, but having teams be proactive in it is also very important. Another issue, though, with open source in general is you know they have repo compromises. So it's like we're trusting this third-party code into our applications where our applications have all these controls in place, such as MFA, you know, merge approvals, code scanning. And then we go ahead and allow this third-party code. And so I think that's a another major challenge that AppSec teams face is, and the industry in a whole faces, is with open source packages. We need to find some good solutions to address those issues. Right, right. Yeah. And a lot of times the first step is people start looking at the manifest files and the dependency files in your repos, which is obviously mm-hmm. a good start. But if you're using containerized workloads, then you want to look at containers as well, because a lot of dependencies get pulled during build time or you know at later stages of the build deploy pipeline, which you may not identify if you're just looking at 
the manifest files uh, in the Git. So it's definitely a multifaceted problem. It's not that easy to solve for sure. Correct. Yeah, and I think I think we need to maybe you know shift those solutions to this like a little bit early on. I feel like you know the devs that are building out these open source packages need to come together with the AppSec community and with the package registry community and work on solutions so that we can do those code scannings, do those merger approvals, have make sure these packages that we're getting and pulling in have had a decent, you know, security look at them before they even get approved to get pulled into, you know, our applications. Right. And that makes me think that the success of this aspect of security is heavily dependent on the maturity of the engineering processes. Like if engineering operates as a wild, wild west, then there's nothing AppSec can do pretty much. But if there is a well-defined process of pulling in new dependencies, keeping them fresh and sustaining the operational environment, then security can have a much easier, much more effective way of doing things. Yeah, it's very important for sure. For security teams to be monitoring, you know, what our developers are actually building out and where those packages are coming from, for sure. Right, right. So Bradley, as you think about the rest of 2023 or even a few years down in the future, where do you see there will be interesting new things happening in the world of product security application or cloud? Uh, what's exciting you in this field today? There's some great products coming out. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with, but it's revolutionizing the way we approach cloud security. You know, having context with the cloud is very important. Cloud scales enormously how things connect, how applications connect. So that's been a really exciting tool that we've recently started using. So more context, it's very important with all of our applications scaling on such a large scale, more tools like that. I hope there will be more tools for open source package registries that we can host, that we can have more context on the packages that we're putting in our applications. And I also hope that we as an industry, you know, start focusing on, you know, actual security risks, you know, prioritizing on, you know, what's this truly, this vulnerability truly means in my organization, but the likelihood it's going to affect me and stop relying so much on the CVs and compliance requirements. And, you know, I think that will help us significantly go ahead and stop more breaches versus, you know, requiring FIPS. Hey, I've got FIPS. Okay, cool. But I left the front door right, wide open. <laughs> it doesn't really matter so much. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think <laughs> a lot of this, definitely a lot of the innovation that is happening <laughs> is also driven by the fact that now we have access to that data from the cloud environment, right? You can leverage AWS or Azure, GCP, whatever. You can leverage the APIs and the metadata from those platforms to build all of that rich context. And if you're getting excited about Wizz's context, you should definitely look at Tromso. I mean, you've, it's kind of a similar model where you know there's a lot of interesting context that you can derive out of GitHub or GitLab or Bitbucket as well. So your point about context being very, very important these days, it's definitely applicable to many other realms uh, as well. Yeah, products that are providing that context is, there's just so much going on nowadays. I think that's super important for us in the, in the product security and application security realm. Amazing. Fantastic, Bradley. So this, this has been an awesome conversation. 
Thank you so much for sharing your insights on this. I really hope we can have you again on this podcast and maybe talk about, you know, more compliance-friendly automation <laughs> in security. We'll see where it goes. But thank you so much for your time, Bradley. Thanks so much, Harshal. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.